Hey church, thanks for tuning in once again to another week of our live streams. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm not sure when you're going to be watching this live stream, but we're so glad that you've tuned in and are joining us. Um, we are praying for all of you who have lost your power and um, are still sort of recovering from uh, the winter storms we experienced last week. If there's anything we can do uh, to be of assistance, please be sure to reach out to us. We would love to be able to help in any way that we can. Today, we're going to continue our series. We're on part two of our series seven. It's a seven-part series working our way <clears throat> through the season of Lent um, leading up to Resurrection Sunday. And so we're we're sort of talking about the seven statements that Jesus made while he was on the cross. Last week, we talked about statement one, where Jesus prayed and continued to pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, we've been anchoring this entire series um, in Jesus' statement to his own disciples when he said, if anyone wants to become my follower or wants to become my disciple, he must first deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so we've been talking about how do we take this life of Jesus and in particular, these things that Jesus said upon the cross and apply them to our own lives in living out this sort of cruciform life together. Now, before we dive into part two here, let me make a quick correction. Last week, I referenced that Jesus was on the cross for three hours, which is sort of pulling information um, from my head there out of memory. Um, Jesus was not on the cross for three hours. He's actually on the cross for about six hours from about 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. So I just want to make sure uh, to make that quick correction. He was on the cross for about six hours. But today, uh, we're going to talk about the second statement of Jesus. And I want to open by saying like, I, I, you know, oftentimes I'm struck by how much of a, a graceless world we live in, if you will, a graceless world. Matter of fact, um, I've been thinking about some of the statements that I hear people say to other people or say about other people, maybe they don't even know, who have found themselves in a difficult moment, um, perhaps by their own fault, by the own, their own decision-making. Um, they'll say things like this. Maybe you've heard this before. Uh, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Anybody anybody heard that before? We, we hear that. I've heard that many times about people who have been arrested, people who have maybe been... Um, uh, you know, just caught in a bad situation. And, and and so we will oftentimes say, well, you know, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Or you've heard people say before, well, they got they got what they deserved. Like if they would have done certain things, if they would have done X, Y, and Z, maybe it would be a better situation for them. And we're trying to explain away and really not have to deal with what's going on in the situation. And so we'll say things like, well, they got what they deserve. Or you, you probably heard this one, you made your bed, now you have to lie in it, right? And so these statements are oftentimes just graceless. They're, they're without any sort of grace towards the person that we are talking about. And so um, we're going to talk today about the, the grace of Jesus while he is on the cross. Last week, we talked about how incredible it was that Jesus would say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do to for the very people he's he's praying for the very people who are executing him. And today we're going to dig, dig into a little bit of some of the dialogue that he has with those who were crucified with him. Now, remember, as we walk through this story, Jesus is hanging on a cross and crucifixion was very, very public. 
Okay, and it wasn't just a public thing in observation where people would just come and watch, although that was part of the deal. It was definitely public in observation, but it was also public in participation. And I, I think sometimes we forget about this aspect of it. What do I mean by that? Well, all people around were invited to participate in the crucifixion. They were invited to condemn those who were being crucified. They were invited to say or do whatever they would like to do to those who were being crucified. Um, they were able to um, it was sort of a pro the process of dehumanizing and humiliating those people who were being crucified. So the entire crowd was it was invited to participate in the crucifixion. They were invited to participate participate by shouting out insults, to even uh, smacking, spitting on, punching, um, throwing stones at, whatever it may be, they were given sort of free reign to participate in the execution of the guilty, those who were hanging upon the crosses. So keep that in your mind as we work through this today. And... Um, Fleming Rutledge, who is a parish priest in New York City, she's a wonderful lady. I've read many of her books, but she she does every year. Maybe this is where I got the three hours. Every year, um, I think every year actually, she does a three hour um, sort of service on Good Friday where she walks through the seven statements. But Fleming Rutledge said this about crucifixion. She said crucifixion was for the scum of the earth. It was for what we call common criminals. Uncommon criminals, white-collar criminals from privileged backgrounds with influential connections would never have been crucified. This is, a very, this is very important for us to reflect upon. Jesus did exactly the opposite of what you and I would do. We want to get away from the dregs of human society. And Jesus voluntarily became a part of the dregs himself. Powerful quote. If you have your Bible, turn your Bible to Luke uh, chapter 23. We'll be in Luke again today. Um, Luke chapter 23. We're going to verse 32 and then we'll jump 39 through 43. It says this, two other criminals were also led away to be executed with Jesus. Verse 39, one of the criminals, now they're on the cross the crosses, um, the one is on Jesus's left and the other is on Jesus's right. So there are two criminals, one on each side of Jesus. Verse 39 picks up and it says this, one of the criminals who was hanging there railed at him saying, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. So you hear one of the criminals is actually participating along with the crowds. The crowds are also making these sort of statements to Jesus. Um, you said you'd destroy the temple and in three days you'd rise it up. Uh, you said you're the Christ. You said that you're son of God. God. Call angels down. Get yourself off the cross, right? So one of the criminals on either side of Jesus is actually participating in the crucifixion of Jesus. Save yourself and us, he says. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, rightly so, he says, for we are getting what we deserve for what we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds to him by saying this, 
play stupid games, win stupid prizes. No, I'm just kidding. Jesus doesn't say that. You made your bed, now you have to lie in it. Jesus doesn't say that. You got what you deserve. Jesus doesn't say that. The criminal is saying that to the other criminal. Look, we're getting what we deserve. This man's innocent. Jesus does not refer to any of those things. Here's what Jesus, the second statement of Jesus is to the criminal on the cross when he says, remember me. Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. The grace that is flowing from the lips of Jesus in this moment as he hangs upon the cross, beaten, bleeding, uh, dehydrated, um, just in, in great crisis and agony, pain, Jesus says to the criminal on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Here's Jesus, and he is being crucified, an innocent man between two thieves. And this is important. We know it's important because every single uh, evangelist, every single gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every single one of them tell us about these thieves. It's only Luke who gives us this sort of um, dialogue between the thieves and between Jesus and, and one of the thieves. But every single one of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, want us to know that Jesus wasn't crucified by himself, but, but that he was crucified in the middle of two thieves. And, and these criminals, um, these thieves, there's lots of different names that are used for them. For instance, thieves, bandits, uh, robbers, outlaws, criminals, malefactors, brigands, rebels, transgressors, others, insurrectionists, okay? These are two men who were charged with sedition against Rome and they were being crucified because they had stirred sedition, they had stirred rebellion against Rome. More than likely, they themselves have involved themselves in, in, in murder. Um, they've involved themselves in robbing people. These are bad dudes on these crosses that in all accounts, uh, any sort of society that holds to a, a um, capital punishment ideology, by all accounts, under those ideologies, these people are deserving what it is that they're getting. And here is Jesus being crucified in the middle of them. Interestingly, Isaiah prophesied about this. Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 12, as he was speaking about Jesus, the suffering servant, the suffering servant, that he was numbered with the rebels or that he was counted among the transgressors. I just find that just so wonderful. Isn't it like Jesus to be counted in death with the scum of the earth, with criminals, with rebels, with transgressors, right? 
that, that Jesus would be counted in his death among the scum of the earth. This, this same Jesus that they said about him, he is gone to eat with sinners, right? They were always frustrated with Jesus because he was sitting at the table with sinners, that he would eat with common folks. If you were really a, a religious rabbi, if you were really somebody powerful, you wouldn't find yourself among commoners, let alone among sinners. And this is what Jesus did. He was never counted in life or in death among the rich. He was never counted among the religious elite. He was never counted among the powerful politicians. No, Jesus was always counted among the poor, always counted among the outcasts, always counted among the marginalized, among the sinners. And here we have him being counted among the rebels, among the scum of the earth that according to Rome were deserving of capital punishment and crucifixion. And Jesus is right in the middle of them. And it's important to note that Jesus is in the center, that there is one thief to his left and another thief to his right, because Jesus is situated in the center on purpose. This was a position that the Romans would reserve for the worst of the criminals. And so having Jesus in the middle was to say that Jesus, out of these three criminals being crucified, that Jesus is the worst of them. And we don't know if there were signs above the, the heads of the thieves on either side, but we do know that they placed a sign above Jesus' head that said, King of the Jews. And people actually said, why don't you change it to say, he said he was the King of the Jews. And they left it just simply as the King of the Jews. And this was what Jesus was guilty of, being King, the King of of the Jews, and indeed the king of all the earth, whether they knew it or not. This is what Jesus was doing as he was hanging on the cross. And so here he is situated in the middle of these two people. I found this beautiful quote that sort of, it's by an anonymous source that sort of lays out this, uh, this imagery of Jesus in the center between two thieves. And it says this, one man died with guilt in him and on him. A second man died with guilt in him, but not on him. And the third died with guilt on him, but not in him. Let's break that down a little bit. This sort of idea of rebellion and remorse. There were two thieves, though both of them accused for seemingly the same crime. They're both having two very different experiences in this crisis of crucifixion. For instance, thief one is angry. Thief one is mocking Jesus. Thief one is angry at the crowd that is mocking him, per perhaps angry at the judge who, ex or who sentenced him to execution, angry at the situation of life that had brought him to this moment, angry at Rome for, for their oppression uh, of the nation. Um, he is an angry man and he is a rebellious man. And all of that is coming forth in, in this moment on the cross that Luke records for us, that he is, that he is mocking Jesus. He has joined the crowds in mocking Jesus. He's saying, listen, if you are the Christ, if you are the Son of God, well then save yourself and also save us. Right? He's 
He's mocking Jesus. This is the rebellion that's in his heart. And that and that phrase that he's saying, if you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, save yourself and save us. It reminded me of, of what Satan did in the desert with Jesus. When Jesus was led to the desert to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan regularly said to him, if you are the son of God, then turn this stone into bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself off the mountain and command angels to come and save you. You hear sort of a similar uh, thing in this voice of this rebellious, angry criminal to Jesus. If you are the Christ, then save yourself and save us. Here we have a man who is dying with both guilt in him and guilt upon him. Like he has been charged as guilty and he is he is living out of this this guilt ridden conscience. And in, in, in this moment, he is choosing to become more angry. He is choosing like a like a, a like a cornered dog. He is becoming he's fighting even more, even more angry. And then we have the second thief on the other side of Jesus. And this thief, he's also angry. And honestly, Matthew tells us that he also mocks Jesus. I don't know if these two thieves knew each other, if they were friends, if they were seditionists together, if they if they were a part of the same band of rebels and and whatnot, insurrectionists. But um, he as he is participating in mocking Jesus as well. But then all of a sudden something happens. Something changes in this man. Maybe maybe he can hear Jesus. Praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We don't know. There's speculation as to what's going on here. But we do know that something changes in the second thief. And the second thief begins to rebuke the first thief. He begins to call him out. Why would you say this to this innocent man? You know that you and I are guilty. We deserve this punishment. But this man, he is innocent. So he rebukes the first thief. And then he... Then he turns to Jesus and he he says to Jesus, he asks Jesus, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? Or remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what sort of kingdom is this thief thinking about? Where does he get this idea that Jesus is coming into a kingdom? Is it perhaps because he's reading the sign, the king of the Jews over his head? How does he know? What is it that's giving him any sort of assurance in this, this crisis, in this crucified moment that Jesus has a kingdom? Jesus is in the same scenario that they're in. They're all three being crucified. We don't know, but something changes in this man. And he cries out to Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And so here we have a man, a second man who is dying with guilt in him, but no longer on him. Like he is, he is getting it off of his chest. He is coming to a place of repentance. He is coming to a place of saying, I need you, Jesus. Please remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's this, it's that old, um, it's beautiful to me because it reminds me of that old equation that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And here's this man with his last breaths 
calling out to Jesus saying, please remember me. You're all I need. When you come into your kingdom, please remember me, Jesus. I need you in my life. And here's what happens. Jesus responds to this man. Jesus responds to this man. He says, surely I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. He makes a promise to this man who is dying on the cross. Now, according to Fleming Rutledge, who I quoted earlier, according to Fleming Rutledge, too often we get focused on the wrong two words of this phrase. And, and I tend to agree with her. Oftentimes we are super hyper focused on in paradise. And we try to parse out what does it mean when Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. Is he talking about heaven? What is it that he's talking about? Um, how will it be today? Jesus was in the grave for three days. Um, did he mean that today as in this day? Or does it mean that he said it today and that later this man would be with him? We get all hung up on the paradise idea, the hyper focus on this idea of in paradise. But what if the key words in this phrase of Jesus, today you will be with me in paradise, what if the key words of Jesus' response are not in paradise, but are with me? With me. Today you will be with me. That Jesus is promising and assuring him that Jesus will be right there alongside him. That in his most difficult moments, Jesus is going to be with him and he also can be there with Jesus. That Jesus is inviting him into a relationship together. And that perhaps that that's what it means to be in paradise. That to be with Jesus is actually to be in paradise to be or that paradise is simply where Jesus is. Just think about it for a moment. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus in this moment again without prerequisite invites the criminal to be with him invites the sinner to sit at the table. He invites the criminal to be with him. And I think that too often, remember we're talking about how do we live out this cruciform life? How do we learn from what Jesus is saying and live from that sort of, that sort of cruciform life? And I think too often we or I tend to assume who does or who doesn't get access, right? Jesus is inviting this uh, criminal. Without prerequisite, he's inviting this criminal to be with him, to, to live with him, to dwell with him, to walk with him, to be in relationship with him, however you want to say that. He's inviting him to be with him. And too often, I think that we make assumptions about who does or who doesn't get access to be with Jesus. We make determinations about the people around us in our lives. And most of the time, we're making those determinations 
foundations off of circumstantial judgments, that from a distance we decide who is in or who is out. From a distance we look at people in their circumstances, in their difficulty, in their worst moments, and oftentimes myself, I do this and, and, and I'm trying my best to learn how to lean into more grace, the grace of the cruciform life, but oftentimes we see them from a distance and we say, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And Jesus looks at them and says, no, today you'll be with me. I'm inviting you to come in relationship with me, to be alongside me. See, I believe that this cruciform life that we're called to live invites those around us to be with Jesus that invites those around us without prerequisite to partake in paradise, to partake in the kingdom of God. That we have a responsibility as the people of God. Scriptures tell us that we have the ministry and the message of reconciliation. How do we do or how do we, how do we minister? How do we speak reconciliation? We do that by inviting people to the table by inviting people to come be with Jesus, by inviting people to come partake of the divine, to partake in paradise, to partake in the way of Jesus. Not if you do these things, then you can be a part of what Jesus is doing. Jesus didn't look at the criminal on the cross and say to him, well, I would like to help you, but we've got to deal with a few things here. We've got to go down a checklist of all of the sins that you created. He does none of those things. He simply says today, surely I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And we don't want to speculate about what happened to the other thief on the cross. I've heard people oftentimes begin to talk about how one goes to heaven and one goes to hell and the separation. And there we are again. We're trying to make determinations about who's in and who's out purely off of speculation. Because scripture doesn't tell us how the story goes for the other criminal. Except for that we know that all three of them die. But it doesn't tell us whether Jesus has any sort of communion with that man. It doesn't tell us if that man in his last breath cries out also in repentance to Jesus. We just don't know. But here's what we do know. That when the criminal cried out to Jesus, remember me, Jesus said, surely I will remember you. Not only will I remember you, I will save you. I will invite you to sit with me at the table to partake in paradise. And I think that that is the role of the church. That is the role of you and me to invite people to partake in the divine kingdom of God. Fleming Rutledge also said this. She said, we will rejoice not only for ourselves, but also for all those others who by human standards would not have been considered salvageable but are now promised an eternal destiny of joy with Christ in his heavenly kingdom. May we be a people that rejoice over humanity, inviting them to partake. Though the rest of society may deem them as being unsalvageable, that they are hopeless people, may we find ourselves among the hopeless as dealers of hope, as those who would say to them, Come, be with me. Come, let me introduce you to Christ. Come sit at our table. Let us partake together of the kingdom of God.
Let's pray today. Father, we pray, expand our hearts, our minds, our imaginations to be like yours so that we can see what you see, Lord. So that we can be like you, Jesus, on the cross, inviting those to to join you in paradise, to join you in the kingdom of God. May we be busy about inviting people to join us in the kingdom of God, to join us at the table of God, to join us in this beautiful meal that has been laid out, this banquet that has been laid out by Jesus himself, this thing called life. Join us in this walk of life in the way of Jesus. Help us to see it the way you see it. Help us to live it the way that you live it. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope that that is helpful for you today. And before you go, let me pray this blessing over you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God bless you. We'll see you next week.